Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We're going to take you first to the U.S. border with Canada, where thousands have been fleeing the U.S. and its new stricter immigration policies. That includes the end of a temporary residency program for almost 60,000 Haitians allowed to legally enter the U.S. following an earthquake in 2010. The Haitians will have to leave the U.S. by 2019. That program has also ended for 2,000 Nicaraguans, and it's unclear if other groups, including 300,000 Salvadorans, will be allowed to remain. The net result is a continued flow of people crossing the border into Canada by foot. They take advantage of a Canadian law that says those who cross by foot won't be turned back until their case is heard. Reporter Lorne Matalon takes us back to the site of earlier reporting for an update from the New York-Quebec border. The exodus continues across the northern border every day at places like Roxham Road in New York. The U.S. Border Patrol in Swanton says it's also happening in Vermont. Only now before they cross on foot, people like Mansour, a 37-year-old engineer from Yemen, are met by a group of women, Canadians and Americans, that includes Janet McFetridge of Champlain, New York. Do you need any warm socks? No, I'll have some in my life. Thank you. God bless you. Mansour gazes at the border. His eyes are sullen, his expression gloomy, and he moves slowly. His U.S. work visa expires in two months, and he says he can't even contemplate the risk of returning to war-torn Yemen. Suffering in this unsafe place. Mansour starts walking. Canadian police try to stop him and a family of five Nigerians. In French, the officer asks the group, do you speak French or English? Français, anglais? English. English? This is Canada, right? If you cross the line here, you'll be arrested for illegal entry. Do you understand? Yes, sir. You do? Yes, sir. Later, a Haitian man steps out of a taxi that brought him from the bus station in Plattsburgh. There's a large Haitian community in Montreal, and he has friends there, he says. I asked him about conditions in his country. I have beaucoup problème, Haiti. Very difficult, he says. The country hasn't nearly recovered from the earthquake, and the country is plagued by large-scale floods, the most recent in November. My life is, I almost lose my life. I, I, I look in on the place to, 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 go. to go, yeah. More than 9,000 people entered Quebec alone between August and November 1st. By comparison, just over 2,400 crossed by foot into all of Canada last year. That's something that Janet McFetridge sees every day. I'm just overwhelmed with the numbers that are going through this little community up here in Champlain. They're crossing here and in Vermont because of a curious legal paradox known as the Safe Third Country Agreement. It's a treaty with the U.S. that says, if you make a claim for refugee status at a legal border crossing into Canada, you'll be sent back because the U.S. is considered safe for refugees. But if you can somehow cross into Canada illegally, the treaty doesn't apply, and you can remain in Canada while your case is decided. I'm not sure that going to Canada is the best decision for all of them, but I just think it's very, very unfortunate that people are leaving our country 
to go into a future that there's certainly no guarantees, and many of them are going to be deported into terrible situations. And I just wish we could help them more here. Canada has increased deportations of would-be refugees this year. McFetridge hands out gloves and hats with her friend Wendy Ayotte from Havelock, Quebec. That's a village of 750 people on the Canadian side of the border. Ayotte's unwavering in her opposition to the Third Safe Country Agreement. And we want the Safe Third Country to be suspended or annulled altogether because we don't think the States is a safe country for refugees anymore. She's not alone. Calls in Canada to cancel the agreement are growing. More than 200 lawyers, along with law students, have been gathering evidence to mount a legal case against it. Amnesty International's also called for an end to the treaty. Eric Taifel is a member of the Quebec Association of Immigration Lawyers. I think we're all uh, shocked by the numbers. Taifel says allowing refugees to apply at a legal crossing would allow Canada to focus more on security because presumably someone with, say, links to terrorism wouldn't consider a legal crossing. Then if you cross in somewhere else, then we could ask questions, you know, why did you cross this way? Are you a security risk? On the border at Roxham Road, a man from Burundi tells Canadian police he can't return to the African nation. They want to kill, kill us over there. Speak English? Yeah, yes. We, we do speak English. Even French. Even after crossing, the process of getting admitted permanently to Canada can take years. But people keep coming illegally because while their claim for refugee status proceeds, they know they'll at least be safe. That's Lauren Matalon reporting for VPR. We're going to have a link to his reporting from the other side of the border up at nextnewengland.org. Puerto Ricans have been facing similar questions about whether to relocate following the devastation of Hurricane Maria. Of course, Puerto Ricans who choose to leave the island to come to New England aren't immigrants, they're U.S. citizens. But as WNPR's Jeff Cohen tells us, the lack of power and water across much of the island is causing a growing number of people to make some hard choices. Jeff Cohen, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Where are we talking to you right now? Where are you? I am in a uh, rental car on the side of the road in the shadow of El Yunque, which is the rainforest uh, mountainous area here in Puerto Rico. And we are uh, on our last you know, stretch of, of our trip here doing reporting and getting a lot of visuals today. So we're uh, sitting in a car on the side of the road in the rain. And as with your previous trip, you've been talking with and meeting people who have connections both on the island and also back here in New England. Who, who are you going to introduce us to? Sure. You're going to hear from a woman named Maria Enid Rodriguez, and she lived in Connecticut for 25 years, uh, I think largely in New Britain. Her family is still there, uh, and I met her a couple nights ago in the town of Calle. My family is in Connecticut. Two daughters, three grandchildren. I never wanted to leave Puerto Rico, so I wanted to come back. And when my small daughter... My youngest daughter um, finished high school. I decided to come back to be with my parents, to be with them. Both of them died. She says, Jeff, that she never wanted to leave Puerto Rico. And this is something that you have been hearing from an awful lot of people who are torn about whether or not they want to make their lives in Puerto Rico or or back, back north in, mm-hmm. in Connecticut or elsewhere in New England. Absolutely. And, you know, it's especially so since the economic crisis hit. Uh, it is that way over time. People move for jobs. People move for, you know, family opportunities. 
Um, and since the hurricane, there are a lot of people faced with that choice of, you know, do I continue to make my life here, which is a place that is even now beginning to pick up in many ways. Uh, we've noticed that in our travels, but, you know, still a very large part of the island is without power. Um, your town center might have it, but you very well likely won't. Water is kind of iffy. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's for a lot of people, it's a really tough choice. And she told you a bit about the choice that she was facing having to do with her job. Exactly. Immediately after the storm, her job, which has been very gracious to her, offered her, uh, you know, a one-way plane ticket, and she wasn't terribly interested in a one-way. She wanted a she wanted a round trip. They want me to pay one one-way ticket to go to Connecticut and be with my family to breathe, but I didn't accept that. I say that I didn't accept one-way ticket. I have to have. I wanted to come back, so they paid me for. I I went to con, to New Britain for ten days. Not, uh, not, for, oof. not for me, for them, for my daughters. I want, I want, me, I, you know, they have to see me that I was okay. And that's why I went to Connecticut. But you knew you were okay. Yeah. <laughs> but they need to see me. I knew that. Mm, so, so she went home for a few days, or at least in her mind, back to Connecticut, New Britain, where she'd lived for so many years, because she wanted to make sure her family knew she was okay, but she had no intention of, of staying there. That's right. She did. And it, you know, it was really, um, it was a really touching moment. And, and we're meeting a lot of people who have deeply personal stories and personal relationships that I hope help illustrate not just the state of, of you know, an island's recovery and response after a hurricane, but the state of an individual's response and recovery after a hurricane, because all of these things are, as we've said, deeply, deeply personal and very intimate decisions. Well, let's listen to uh, the last little bit of her story here. She grapples with this choice. I work out of my house and I lost my whole office with Maria. Do you have electricity now? No. No electricity, no internet. I have to decide. I want to stay in the company and go to the United States until this set up, you know, everything get normal. Or I lost my job. I decided to stay here. Is there a point at which um, you have to make a decision um, uh-huh. about your job and about your future? I mean, is there. I think that at, at the end of December, I have to decide if the situation in Puerto Rico doesn't get normal. I'll have to decide if I go to the United States or I stay here and lose my job. It's a tough choice. I don't know. I can answer that question right now. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she, she tells you there she's not sure what she's going to do and probably won't know until at least the end of this month. I, I should say, Jeff, as we listen to that conversation, there's a, a few things that we hear in the background. One is the sound of the ubiquitous coqui, the, the small frog that seems to live and chirp everywhere on, on the island. And the other thing you hear is, is people playing music in the background, and, and that is what brought you to Calle. Tell us about why you were there. Right, so that was uh, one of our favorite nights and experiences here. 
We visited a place called La Casa Histórica de Música Callejana, which means the Historical House of Music in, Call in Calle, or of Calle Music. Uh, and it is a nonprofit uh, right in the main square. It was started by a guy named Andres Yambo, who lived in Hartford for about four years. He used to work at, at Children's Hospital. Uh, he started it, and every Friday and Saturday night for the past year, they open the doors and it's a music fest, and people can come in and enjoy themselves, and it's free. Anybody can come in, anybody can bring an instrument and play, anybody can listen in. Uh, and it obviously, as you can hear, was uh, a, whole, a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of people taking a breath and stepping away and saying, uh, tonight is a night to have some fun and to celebrate and enjoy each other because you really, you can't live a hurricane 24-7. Uh, I was speaking with Andres Yambo and he told me, yeah, he sort of bristled at the notion of the saying that you see around a lot and you can see on social media, that Puerto Rico se levanta, which means Puerto Rico rising, right? Um, his notion was that Puerto Rico doesn't really need to rise up because it never really fell down. WNPR's Jeff Cohen and Ryan Karen King continue their reporting efforts in Puerto Rico for a project for WNPR called The Island Next Door. We'll have links to all of their work on our website, nextnewengland.org. Jeff, thanks so much for sharing these stories with us, and safe travels. You're welcome. We've got links to the WNPR reporting project, The Island Next Door, at nextnewengland.org. At twilight in late fall, thousands and thousands of crows take wing above the highways running through Hartford, Connecticut. Whether you live here or you see them from the interstate, you might wonder where all these crow commuters are headed. WNPR's Patrick Scahill went to find out where they call home. It's something I've wondered for a while. Every fall, going back several years, if I look outside my office at dusk, I see crows flying south. The numbers can be amazing. Chris Van is a wildlife biologist with the state. We found the roost where every night thousands of crows return to sleep. It's right next to Interstate 84, just a few blocks from my office as the crow flies. They seem to concentrate here in a, in a relatively small area, and they'll stay here all night, and they'll be 25, 30 feet up in trees and people and cars walking by them and it's just so odd. As I look up with a closed mouth, thousands of birds swirl above, plopping like spooky ornaments onto leafless branches. Patrick Cummins with the Connecticut Audubon Society says there are actually two species of crow up there, the American crow and the fish crow. Here's how to tell the difference. The American crows are the typical caw, 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 whereas the fish crows are a eh, 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 eh very uh, nasally call. The fish crows are a little bit smaller. They have a little bit faster wing beats, smaller build. Crows are a type of corvid, just like blue jays or the common raven. The birds were hit hard by the West Nile virus in Connecticut around 2000, but Cummins says numbers appear to be bouncing back. He says if there's one thing you know about crows, it's probably this. They're really clever. They're among the smartest animals in North America. They're gregarious. They form family groups or tribes. So they cooperate with one another. They communicate with one another. 
They can figure out all sorts of puzzles. They can even remember human faces. And as thousands of birds swirl above us, Chris Van says it's easy to imagine how the sudden arrival of crows in Hartford in the mid-90s took a lot of people by surprise. Why here? Can anybody explain this? We've got birds that are right on the streets. They're unafraid of anything, and they're pooping on all the walkways. We can't, we can't coexist like this. Van says that was the attitude when the birds descended on spots like Etna's downtown campus. Federal wildlife officials were called in to deal with the problem, but Van says the solution actually turned out to be pretty simple. They just played tape of a distressed crow. Van sets up a speaker and demonstrates the technique. Listen as all the calling stops. As Van claps, hundreds of birds blow off the tree, circling above us. It's eerie and mesmerizing, dark shadows silently gliding against a dusty pink twilight. The crows are alarmed, but not outsmarted. It's like, well, we're not that scared of this anymore. We might move over a few properties, but you, know, you can see the birds already are like, well, there's nothing really here chasing us. So. The following day I went back, and sure enough, the crows were all pretty much in the same spot. As they circled, the sun set, and there I was, surrounded by birds in darkness. I snapped a few photos as the crows continued to talk, and as I looked up, I couldn't help but wonder, do they remember me? That's Patrick Scahill reporting. Coming up, a look at housing options for an aging New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. In the 18 years after World War II, birth rates across America hit unprecedented levels. They called that generation the baby boom, and today they make up about 25% of the U.S. population. As today's baby boomers head into retirement, they're rewriting the expectations that we have about where and how senior citizens want to live. As we've reported in the past, New England's population is older than most of the country. Given that Vermont is expected to have the oldest population in the nation by 2030, many baby boomers there are facing decisions about what their housing will be. Please come in. <laughs> Please sit in. Jen Belleville is among them. When her youngest child graduated high school, Belleville decided it was time to sell the large family home in Brandon, Vermont. I don't want to be a burden to my children. I don't know how other baby boomers feel, but I don't want for my kids to have the pressure of financially taking care of me, physically taking care of me. VPR's Howard Weiss-Tisman takes it from here. After nearly five years on a wait list, Jan Belleville finally moved into affordable senior housing about three years ago. But this isn't what she imagined her life would be like at 67. This was never what I wanted. But this is the way life turned out for me. I did the best I could, raising three kids alone and trying to prepare. And I'm in subsidized housing, and that's the reality. Belleville says she made the move to stretch her retirement money, so she'll be able to live independently as long as possible. You know, and the money's going to dwindle so quickly, you think, what do I do then? Belleville is among a growing number of boomers expected to lean on affordable housing options, and that will put pressure on Vermont's entire housing system. 
Vermont's latest housing assessment shows that more than 1,000 people won't be able to find affordable housing over the next few decades. But not all the boomers will be moving into facilities designed specifically for seniors. Maura Collins is with Vermont Housing Finance Agency, and she says there's been a steep uptick in seniors who want to live in downtown areas, near restaurants and art happenings. So as more seniors look to move into market-rate apartments, they'll be putting a squeeze on the same housing that could appeal to younger first-time homebuyers. Our older population is really competing with millennials for what we would traditionally think of as a starter home. And so having two competing populations for that one unit in a state with a housing crunch is not good news, and we are very concerned about that. Collins says even when they move into so-called senior housing, those developments look different than in years past. But she says we shouldn't be surprised. Every structure that baby boomers come up against, they seem to change, whether it be music or food or housing or anything. And so it's not surprising that they are doing retirement differently as well. Mobile home parks are increasingly viewed as an important part of the state's strategy for supporting affordable housing. A UVM study found that about one-third of the mobile homes in Vermont had at least one retired senior living there. Hi, Jim. That's my neighbor. A lot of people don't envision this for a front yard and a mobile home park. <laughs> Pretty awesome, really, you know? Robert Kennett is 76 years old, and he lives in a mobile home park in Hinesburg. Oh, yeah. oh, I think it's important to keep the idea of affordable housing for people in our age group. And we're in the same boat as a lot of other seniors. This whole story of do I pay my rent or pay for my medicine, those are facts. Those are facts that we have to deal with. Without this, we wouldn't make it. Without this, we just wouldn't make it. Whether looking to downsize or stay where they are, many boomers will eventually need some kind of support in the home. Vermont has been a national leader in helping seniors age in place. A program that started here in 2009 that helps seniors stay in their homes is now being replicated around the country. And that trend is sure to continue as the boomers move into retirement. But Beth Stern, who's the director of the Central Vermont Council on Aging, says the boomers might need more outside help than the previous generation. I think the challenge for baby boomers potentially will be that we're a much more mobile society now, and the children of baby boomers are living elsewhere. You may not have generations and family support that you might have had originally when people tended to stay more local. And so caregiving is going to be a huge issue for baby boomers. Stern says the increase in the number of seniors who will be needing care at home and in nursing facilities comes at a time when there are less young people throughout the state to fill caregiver positions. Because of our population dropping in the younger ages, we are not going to have the caregivers necessarily to work in that field either in nursing homes or residential care homes or in home-based care. So that is something that I am concerned about for baby boomers. Vermont's been trying to address its housing crisis even before the boomers began moving into retirement. And as that bubble grows over the next few decades, boomers' decisions will ripple throughout Vermont's housing community. That's VPR's Howard Weiss-Tisman reporting. That story is part of a series from the VPR newsroom that looks at the aging of the baby boom generation in Vermont. He joins me now to talk a little bit more about what he learned during that reporting. Howard Weiss-Tisman, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. All right. You're welcome, John. 
Well, why don't we get into some of the demographics? What does Vermont expect to look like demographically a couple decades down the road? What's happening in Vermont and across New England is that on the other side of the pipeline, so to speak, we don't have a lot of young people. We have a low um, birth rate in Vermont and in New England, and we also are some of the whitest states in the country, so we don't have a lot of young immigrant families coming. So while New England is seeing the same trend that's happening across the country, the bubble of baby boomers is kind of impacting housing and health care and the economy in different ways because the boomers are taking up a larger chunk of the population. Is there anything that's different about these baby boomers in Vermont from baby boomers in the rest of the country? I mean, I think that there's a sense, Howard, that there are a lot of people who came to Vermont in the first place in order to have a different style of life. And I suppose what you're finding is a lot of those people want to uh, maintain this style of life in, even in their older years. They want to they want to stay here and, as you said before, kind of age in place. Yeah, some of the differences from this generation um, compared to the seniors that, that are around now is that the baby boomers tend to be more mobile. Um, there's more divorce in this generation than in the past. This generation is less likely to be religious and to have community around the church. The boomers have less of a support system than the, the past generation did. And if we think of seniors in New England, we, we think of uh, families who have been here for generations, who might have brothers and aunts and uncles, et cetera, nearby, who have had communities that have been living for generations. And the boomers who moved up during the Back to the Land movement, um, who may have come up to New England and come up to Vermont over the past 10 or 20 years, there's a feeling that they don't have as much as a support system there. And so as we see this bubble aging and we think about some of the needs they're going to have in housing, in medical care, um, some experts are wondering where the support is going to come from. So, Howard, what it seems like is Vermont is getting ready to become the oldest state in the nation You've got a population that is going to get out of the workforce. And as you said, not a whole lot of people necessarily coming into the state, uh, either immigrants or young workers. What does this mean for the economy of Vermont? And how is Vermont uh, preparing for what's going to be an obvious change in its economy over the course of the next couple decades? This is a huge issue. One of the biggest impacts will be that with a quarter of our population um, retiring or working less, a large chunk of our population is going to be making less money. And so there's going to be less income tax going into the state coffers. There's also studies that show that seniors just don't spend in the same way that younger folks do, millennials do, and people in their 30s and 40s. They're not consuming as much and they're not going out as much. And so there's also going to be less meals and room taxes coming into the state. And the Joint Fiscal Office studies that have been done up here in Vermont, the main takeaway is that the state should be preparing because it's very likely that over the next 10 or 20 years, Vermont's just going to have less money to work with. And it kind of comes at a time when boomers might be needing more services, they might be needing more transportation, they might be needing more medical care. So lawmakers 
and economists, uh, they're concerned. Howard Weiss-Tisman covers Southern Vermont and the Connecticut River Valley for Vermont Public Radio. Howard, thanks so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Electric vehicles make up a fraction of the cars sold in New England currently, but new state policies and a cash infusion from the settlement of Volkswagen's pollution scandal could speed the build-out of electric vehicle charging stations and jumpstart the region's EV market. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports. Environmentalists see the switch from combustion engine to electricity-driven cars as a powerful tool to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But Bill Hensley, who lives in central Maine, says he bought an all-electric Nissan LEAF this summer, mostly because it's a cool technology. I guess it goes in that order. Cool factor, savings, and then saving the planet. (laughs) Hensley weighed in at a recent Portland hearing on how Maine should spend its share of a Volkswagen settlement over the company's scheme to bypass emission regulations. All in, the New England states will receive more than $200 million dollars to be dedicated to varying anti-pollution efforts, with the lion's share going to Massachusetts and Connecticut. Hensley is focused on improving Maine's patchwork of charging stations. He says the electricity to fuel his car costs less than half of what he would pay for gas, but that's little help if his battery taps out while he's on the road. And he says that with cars that today at best get up to 200 miles per charge, so-called range anxiety is a real barrier for people considering all electric plug-ins. We need some of these places that traditionally don't even think of electric vehicles to start thinking electric, and that's going to get everybody on board. The states can spend up to 15% of their VW money directly on charging stations, a total of $30 million in New England. High-speed stations that can fill a battery in a half an hour can cost tens of thousands of dollars, so it's not clear exactly how many the New England states may be able to install. Slower charging units are much less expensive. Mark LaBelle, a lawyer at the Acadia Center, says states should tend first to the big travel corridors, including I-95. So that somebody can get from Portland to Providence and has an easy place to charge along the way. The goal is shared by Matthew Beaton, the Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs in Massachusetts, which has set a target of 300,000 new zero-emission vehicles in the Bay State by 2025, the most aggressive policy that's been articulated in this region. This is going to come really quick, in my opinion, if the right infrastructure is in place. That is why that is so important for us to be making those investments. Now, Beaton says the state will soon issue its proposals for the VW money, and that will include significant spending on EV efforts. And while the states decide on the VW funds, the private sector is charging ahead. In Vermont, two utilities last month announced cash incentives to help low-income residents buy or lease EVs. National Grid plans to spend $24 million on underground feeder lines for charging stations in Massachusetts. And smaller-scale work abounds. Here at Flight Deck Brewing, which opened in Brunswick this summer, Barry Woods checks on the installation of four new charging units. Three of them are a Tesla connector version, and one of them is a universal charger. Woods directs EV work at Revision Energy, which started out as a Portland-based solar installation company 
but which is now branching out to the EV world with offices in Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. He says installations at businesses such as Flight Deck and soon L.L. Bean in Freeport can give them a leg up with the plug-in car crowd who choose destinations based in part on access to charging stations. For the host site, they get to be on a number of different websites that provide plug-in drivers location of charging availability. So they get some cross-marketing bump. Woods is bullish on the future of EVs in the region, where sales are rising by more than 30 percent a year. That could speed up come January, when an agreement that includes all the New England states except New Hampshire will require car makers to make a certain percentage of plug-ins available for sale. The target ramps up to more than a million sold in the Northeast within seven years. There is a long road ahead. While some 25,000 all-electric vehicles have been sold to New England drivers since 2011, that's a minuscule portion of the 5 million cars on the region's streets. Adam Lee, chairman at Maine's Lee Auto Malls and an active player in state environmental organizations, says while the technology should make sense for many New England drivers, he's so far been disappointed by sales. You know, we're the number one leaf dealer in the state. We sell 20 a year. We sell probably 50 used leafs. Even at 50 out of 10,000 cars, it's a very, very small number. But Lee does agree with Woods and other EV evangelists that a tipping point may be at hand. They say as batteries become cheaper and more robust, and as charging stations proliferate, the advantages of going electric will become more compelling to thrifty Yankee car buyers. That was Fred Bever reporting for Maine Public. Coming up, foods of New England from the humble to the sublime. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Local has become the most important word in the world of New England food. Local grass-fed beef, locally made sheep's milk cheese, or restaurants that proudly list the names of local farmers that grow their food are all a growing part of this movement. Amy Traverso is senior food editor for Yankee Magazine and at NewEngland.com, and she's been watching these trends. She's an expert in New England food and an advocate for it. She says chefs and food producers are challenging the notion that New England's traditional foods are stodgy and boring. Traverso is in charge of giving out Yankee Magazine's annual Editor's Choice Food Awards, now five years in the running. Amy, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. It sounds like a a fun job. Can you tell us what the senior food editor of Yankee Magazine gets to do? Yeah, you know, I almost feel guilty talking about it (laughs) because it is a really, really fun job. So I cover all the food content for Yankee and our uh, website, NewEngland.com. It's not a lot of intensive restaurant reviews. It's more writing about kind of the quirky New Englandy iconic places. When you say New Englandy, what do you mean? What are you thinking about when you think of New Englandy food? With everything we do with Yankee, we want our coverage to have this really strong sense of place because we know New England lives in people's imaginations, even if they're not living here. Half of our readers live outside of the region. So this is a place where people have deep emotional connections to. So I'm looking for any kind of a restaurant that somehow uh, sort of 
pulls that cord. Um, one of the things that I think is exciting about food in New England right now is I see chefs kind of re-embracing some of those traditional foods again um, without shame <laughs> and with a, a bit of a modern spirit, maybe doing modern interpretations of these dishes that I think for a long time people felt were a little bit stodgy and uninteresting. Mm. Maybe you can talk a bit more about that, about how you make something that many people feel is stodgy and uninteresting, the traditional New England cuisine. How do you make it alive for the 21st century? I think of this as the next generation of eating locally. So, um, you know, whereas chefs for a while were cooking for the most part in sort of a Mediterranean, French, Italian or, you know, Northern Californian style in New England, but using locally grown ingredients. I think now they're taking it to the next level and saying, well, what are the flavors of this region and how can I work them in? I mean, there's a chef named Will Gilson in Cambridge who has a restaurant called Puritan and Company. He takes Moxie, that famous sort of controversial main soda that's like a, a more bitter Coca-Cola. I actually really like it, but, um, you know, not everybody does. He glazes lamb belly in a moxie glaze, which is kind of a fun interpretation. He also did a salad and he incorporated Johnny cakes in this salad. We're really seeing it all over. And I, I'm excited about it because I think you know, in the South, people have long taken real pride in the diverse culinary heritage of the region. And in New England, we have a very diverse, I mean, we have native foods, we have Portuguese and Italian foods, which hugely influenced the way we eat. Um, I mean, you look at the classic Rhode Island stuffy. I love stuffies. I seek them out every summer, which is a stuffed quahog with some sort of bready dressing and uh, usually chopped clams, some herbs, and usually chorizo or chorice, as they say in Rhode Island. Um, which is, you know, a Portuguese sausage. And that is very much a classic New England dish at this point, but it definitely has Portuguese roots. And is that something that you think is changing even more as New England diversifies? I mean, on our program, one of the things we chart is this changing face of New England with so many people coming from all over the world, changing the, the demographic makeup of our region. Do you see it changing substantially in the food as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, while I'm talking about this um, this kind of resurgence of finding inspiration in, in traditional New England foods or historic New England foods, these dishes are on the same menu as they're on the same menu that are featuring lots of global flavors. Well, we've talked a little bit about the the current state of New England cuisine and maybe a little bit about the future. I, I do have to ask you a historical question. Why exactly is Boston Beantown? Oh, okay. So Boston is Beantown because um, baked beans, which were, I should say, a technique that really was adopted from Native Americans. Baked beans became such a staple food and were so abundant. And molasses, of course, was very abundant in Boston because it was the center of the the triangle trade that exchanged sugar, rum, and slaves uh, to our shame. Molasses was a byproduct of that sugar processing, and so it was abundant in Boston. Um, and so you have a lot of beans, you have a lot of molasses, and you have this tradition of cooking beans over a long period of time in an oven after you've baked the bread. Also, early New Englanders tended to observe the Sabbath in a in a more uh, a stricter way, which meant no work on Sunday. And so baked beans were something you could put in the oven uh, and allow to cook all day or overnight and eat on Sunday without uh, doing what would be considered work um, by religious authorities. 
Hmm. We've talked in the past about how different states or different parts of New England have different ways of preparing some very traditional New England foods. I mean, a famous one is the lobster roll. In in yeah. Maine, they, they make it with mayonnaise for some reason. And, and here in Connecticut... <laughs> oh, I know here, where your loyalties here, are. Here in Connecticut, we, we make it in a, in a hot buttered roll. It's a very different style. And there's, of course, variations in, in chowders. What are some other examples of, of some famous foods around New England in which you might find something a little different in one place than another. So let's see. Well, we see, for example, you know, in Connecticut, I'm a Connecticut native. Um, we have the grinder. Other people call it the Subway sandwich. We call it the grinder. Um, in Portland, Maine, they have what's called the Italian sandwich, um, which is basically a sub with Italian cold cuts. Then there's variations on pizza. You've got your New England a pizza, which is, you know, in traditionally cooked in a charcoal oven, um, pretty well done. Uh, you would say charred, not burned. Um, often, you know, with um, with a really nice tangy tomato sauce. Whereas, you know, south of Boston, you have something called bar pizza, which is like a really delicious uh, tradition on the South Shore. It's kind of greasy and fluffy, but crisp bottom. Do you have a, a weirdest food that you found as you travel New England, something that is particularly New England, but also kind of strange? You know, this isn't strange to me because I grew up here, but I was once um, having dinner with a couple of Brits who are really well-traveled. They go all over the world and they eat everything. And we were at the Union Oyster House in Boston because they wanted to have that like classic New England thing. And they ordered steamers, and and the the guy took out his notebook, and he wrote down in great detail this bizarre food that he was eating. And it hadn't occurred to me how weird steamers are. When you think about, I mean, the weird neck and the 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 rinsing off the sand, and then the butter. I mean, it's it's an odd kind of food. Let's talk about these New England food awards. Tell us about the criteria that that you have. What is it you're looking for? The idea of the food awards is, you know. Restaurants are really only half of the equation of what makes New England such a great place to live and eat. Um, the other half is ingredients. And whether that's gorgeous produce or seafood that we're getting or meat or, you know, any of the kind of farmed or raised ingredients, but also the products, the made ingredients, particularly ones that are made in smaller scales by um, really talented artisans who are in it for the love and in it maybe to save a family farm. For example, um, this year, this is one story that I, I find really charming. Um, there is a little chocolate shop called Vicuña Chocolate. Um, it's in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And a young woman named Neely Cohen, who's a really talented pastry chef, she actually won Food Network Sweet Genius competition a few years ago. She opened a bean-to-bar chocolate shop. And bean-to-bar means you're literally starting with beans imported from somewhere in the equatorial regions of the world, and you are doing the whole blending, tempering, sorting, cracking, winnowing process. Um, Neely created this company, was making wonderful chocolates. And this past year, she decided to, uh, she needed to kind of stretch her wings and she moved overseas and sold the business to these two recent high school grads. They, along with their families, have bought this business and are, are keeping the bean to bar thing going. 
growing and making really wonderful chocolate. So I love finding these little businesses that are working really hard, especially when it's like a cheesemaker, because for a lot of New England uh, dairy farmers, it's really hard to make a living simply producing milk that you're selling on the commodity market. And a lot of farmers have found the only way to keep a dairy business going is to have a value-added product like cheese, which you can sell for more money. Um, And yes, these cheeses are not cheap. This is not supermarket, you know, foil-wrapped kind of Uh, American style cheese. But when you buy a quarter of a pound of this cheese for $5, uh, you're not only supporting the making of some a delicious product, but you're keeping a farm alive, you're keeping green space in our New England landscape, which we we value so much. You you mentioned the the packaging of these items, and sometimes they're, they're quite beautiful to look at too. You also have a winner here from a cheese called Mountain Ash that seems to be coated in a thin layer of ash, which yeah. sounds, uh, in first you know thought, not necessarily the most appetizing thing. Tell us about this ash cheese. It's usually some sort of food-grade vegetable ash. Sometimes it's hay that's been burned into ash. Ash has an interesting effect in cheesemaking process. Mountain ash, the cheese that we're highlighting from Sweet Rowan Farm, is a, a cow milk cheese. But particularly with goat's milk cheeses, if you're not a big fan of goat's milk cheeses, um, you might find them a little tangy or funky. Get a, a cheese with ash on it and then give that a try because it has the effect of really taming the tangy kind of funky flavors um, and producing a mellower sweet sort of sweeter creamier mouth experience do you think that there's such a thing as authenticity in new england cuisine or is that kind of gone by the wayside with with all of the people coming from all over the world changing the way in which we eat and think about food I think there is still a lot of authenticity. I mean, it's a tricky word, you know, what what is authentic? And we could do a whole segment on that. But um, boy, on my travels, I will wander into, you know, a, a diner that uh, the same family's been operating for 60 years and they've mastered grape nut pudding. Just this weekend, I was in Connecticut eating uh, hamburgers at Shady Glen or cheeseburgers where they, you know, melt the cheese on the griddle. They kind of drape the cheese over the cheeseburger so that the cheese actually hits the griddle and cooks and becomes crisp and brown. And it's like almost like a chip. And they've been doing this since the 40s. That to me is a totally authentic experience. Anything that people are cooking from a tradition, um, to me, feels authentic. I think when you get into um, higher-end dining, I think it gets a little slipperier if people are cooking from, you know, a multitude of global influences and trying to kind of keep up with food trends and do what do what is expected of a fine dining restaurant. I mean, it, it again, it depends on how you define authenticity. I think it's authentic talent, authentic technique, really great ingredients, but maybe it's not that same kind of warm bath feeling you get when you go to a place that is cooking from a longstanding tradition, preferably the same family, or at least, you know, maybe one one change of hands in, in the, you know, in a few decades. I, I've got one last very unfair question to ask you, which is if, let's say you were cast out of New England, you couldn't live here and be the senior food editor for Yankee Magazine, and you had to live elsewhere, and you wanted to have one last really New england bite of food, what would it be? So last summer, uh, summer before last, I went on a uh, six-day road trip up the Maine coast in an RV with my family in search of the best lobster roll in Maine. And... Um, 
the place that sort of really hit it for me was McClune's Lobster in uh, South Thomaston, Maine. It's in this it's sort of mid-coast Maine near Rockland and Camden. And it is, if you were to close your eyes and imagine the platonic ideal of a lobster shack on a cove where the boats are coming in with fresh lobster and there's a view of islands and the sun sparkling on the water. So for me, I think a July day at McClune's, the sun is shining, I'm looking out at the islands and I'm eating a really solidly terrific lobster roll. I think that would, and oh, and they have like homemade pie for dessert. So it'd be like moxie. A lobster roll and a slice of pie, that, w- that would be it for me. And then I'd cry, and then I'd be on my way. <laughs> it sounds pretty good. Uh, Amy Traverso, senior food editor, Yankee Magazine. She's judge of the fifth annual Yankee Editor's Choice Food Awards, and we'll have more information on our website, nextnewengland.org. Amy, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Thanks. You can find the full list of the 2017 Editor's Choice Food Award honorees in the November-December issue of Yankee Magazine. We've also got a link and photos on our website. It's nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andre Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Ian Fox at the PRX Podcast Garage and John Dillon of VPR. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Find more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you like this week's show, you can follow our Facebook page at Next to New England. We've got stories from around the region, some videos, and a lot more. It's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio and WNPR 